from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, April 7th. Today, voting in a pandemic. The undocumented people who perform essential work. And an island prepares for the worst. So tell me about what's happened over the last 24 hours in Wisconsin. The Wisconsin primaries, which are the only in-person primaries in all of April to happen, were on... We have breaking news into our newsroom. Tomorrow's upcoming Wisconsin spring election and presidential primary will go on as planned. And then the governor decided to try to use emergency powers to declare them off. Earlier today, the governor issued that executive order citing growing public health risks. And then the Republican legislature sued. They have since taken the case to the Wisconsin Supreme Court and won. And the state Supreme Court agreed with Republicans. And so now... That ruling coming down less than an hour ago in a 4-2 to two decision. They're back on. All of that happened in a span of 24 hours before the primary. Amber Phillips has been keeping up with all the twists and turns of today's election in Wisconsin. Meanwhile, a judge a couple days earlier had said... Voters can request absentee ballots beyond the deadline, and it's okay if you don't get those mailed in by by the Tuesday election or postmark by then. But then the U.S. Supreme Court overruled that judge. It was a five to four vote with conservatives in the majority. So Wisconsin voters essentially are in a situation Tuesday where they know the election's going forward, but they were told they could vote absentee later than normal. And now those who did vote absentee later than normal might have their ballots tossed. It's just a total mess. And a lot of the drama happened in the past 48 hours right before the election. And so we're taping this right now, mid-morning on Tuesday. What have we seen so far from the polls? Like, are people actually showing up to vote in person, even though there are concerns about whether that could be a health risk? So far on Tuesday morning, we have seen long lines. A lot of differences here from your normal elections. A lot of PPE. I'm hearing several hundred people showing up at the few polling locations in Milwaukee specifically that are open. This line is for people with disabilities or people who may be experiencing symptoms of COVID-19. They are voting through this drive-through. And those lines are getting even longer because people are trying to stand uh, six feet apart. You have public health officials trying to hand out masks. Election officials and the voters themselves are, are doing their best to try to go out in public safely and vote. And I think it's worth pointing out that Milwaukee, during a normal election, would usually have 180 polling places, and now they have five. And so you have to wonder how that is going to affect people's ability to actually get out there and vote. And a lot of those polling places, Martine, were in senior centers, and seniors tend to be more high propensity voters. Those were the first to go because, you know, health officials and election officials didn't feel safe bringing in outside people into these senior centers. But then 
how does someone who might be at risk for complications from the virus decide to leave their home and, and go out where there's hundreds of people and go vote? So it feels like what we're seeing in Wisconsin is in some ways a worst case scenario of how to do an election during these times. And you have a lot of other states who are finding themselves in similar situations where they want to hold the Democratic primary as soon as possible, but that they're thinking that it's not safe. And so what are some of the difficulties and complications that states are coming up against when they're trying to figure out how exactly to hold an election during these really unprecedented times. Yeah, I talked to two secretaries of state thinking that through a Democrat in Minnesota and a Republican in Iowa, and they stress that there's no good option. Nobody wants to move elections back a couple months. But that's the first thing to go. You know, at least 20 states, with the exception of Wisconsin, decided as soon as they realized what a public health threat coronavirus was, they're going to move the election back to late summer. And they're going to figure out what to do from there. So then what are the options that are available to states when they're trying to figure out how to hold their elections right now? Mail-in balloting would be the safest. Just everybody stay in their home. Everybody vote by mail. Nobody leaves. Uh, That's not an option for most states, in part because it's just easier said than done to set up. It takes entirely new equipment. If you're going to have your whole state suddenly vote by mail, you need a heavy-duty scanner that an election official told me could cost up to $1 million per county. This is more money than some states have for the entire election budgets. States can't just mail out the absentee ballots or, or the regular ballots they have already printed. You have to create new ones that will fold in an envelope. You have to print instructions. You have to spend money trying to educate voters about what's going to happen and how this is going to change. And The Republican Secretary of State in Iowa said he estimated that'll be $500,000 alone just to do a a kind of voter education campaign. This is less of an issue, election officials stressed to me, but it's going to take a long time to count those, those ballots by mail. We're talking weeks instead of hours or even days. They also are struggling with how to fight impersonation. How do you make sure that the person filling out the ballot is that person? In the five states that have statewide mail-in voting, there are no examples of widespread fraud. But election officials stress to me it's something they're trying to wrestle with anyway, especially if you're going to expand it out to their entire state. Another one is that I think we saw this play out in Wisconsin is that there's just pure politics at play. That President Donald Trump has outright said, if you expand mail-in voting, you're expanding the number of people who might be going to vote because they don't have to take that extra step to go leave their house. And if you expand the voting pool in many states, you expand it to include more Democrats, since it tends to be younger voters and voters of color and more transient voters who don't go to polling locations. They had things, uh, levels of voting that if you ever agreed to it, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again. They had things in there about, uh, you know, election day. So so I get that mail-in voting is difficult to start from scratch when people are working on really tight deadlines and it's right up against the time that they're supposed to be holding these elections. But why not just expand absentee ballots? They already have a form and a mechanism for doing that. Just print more, send more of them out and be able to hold the election that way. 
The election officials I talked to said that is a very good option, though it comes with some difficulties. They said in a lot of states, it's going to be probably a mix of stuff. Can you expand absentee balloting? How can you have some in-person polling places? How can you maybe expand counties that might have mail-in voting, which there's more of those than entire states, you know, expand that to maybe the next county. So there could be a mix of stuff. But absentee balloting is is one that we're likeliest to see grow by November. And it comes with its own challenges because in, in most states, voters have to request absentee ballots before they can get one mailed to them. So there's this extra step required of them to vote. In Iowa, they're paying to mail that application out to everybody in the state with prepaid postage and and a voter education campaign as well to say, listen, we know you have to take this extra step. We're trying to help you do that. We're trying to make sure you can get your absentee ballot. But other states have limitations to absentee balloting. For example, in North Carolina, you have to have two people or a notary sign off that, yes, you're the person uh, filling out this ballot, and, and the reason you're filling this out is the reason you said you couldn't be in the state for X reason. North Carolina election officials are considering changing that, but will they get that done in time? In Wisconsin, there was also a, a witness requirement that a judge lifted, but another judge put back on. And and so in this era when you know we're supposed to see as few people as possible, there are a number of states that could require people to to flout public health rules and and go find a witness or two to sign their absentee ballot. And of course, when those extra steps are in place just to be able to cast a ballot, there has to be an expectation that that's just going to dissuade a lot of people from even trying to vote, that it's too complicated. And in some cases, it's a public health risk and it's just not worth it. And that you would have to imagine that that might have some significant effect on the actual results of the election. Right. It's a fair question if states expand absentee balloting without waiving any of the original restrictions they had, are they just putting voters in the same position as they would for in-person voting, forcing them to choose to some degree their health over participating in a democracy? And is the federal government doing anything about this or trying to come up with some kind of standardized guidance on what states should be doing in this situation? Because it seems like all of these states are somewhat at a loss. Congress has its eye on this. In the $2 trillion aid package they passed, they included some $400 million to help states figure this out. Just give them money and say, listen, we know you might need to hire new staff or buy new voting machines or print new ballots or do voter education campaigns. Here's some money. Minnesota's Secretary of State echoes many election officials when he told me, it's a nice down payment, but that's not that's not nearly enough money. What I find so ironic about this situation is that this seems like a time where people are really reckoning with the fact that elections have consequences and particularly local and state elections have consequences, that we're seeing vastly different reactions to this public health crisis and how to deal with it and how to help people. And we're seeing those differences along political and local and state lines in many ways because of the person who happens to be at power at the time. And the as people are thinking about that, that all of a sudden it's much harder to actually make decisions on who should be that person in power. Yeah, this is, there's so many problems with America's voting system that this is really laying bare when when suddenly you have to re-examine all of it and in a very short amount of time. I mean, that's the other thing is this five states that have statewide 
mail-in ballot campaigns spent years putting this together. And states like Washington and Oregon and California are talking to these other election officials all the time, sharing their playbook, sharing best practices. But these other states have weeks, months, maybe at the most, to start ordering the equipment and printing the ballots and figuring out how to set this up. I mean, there's just so much room for error in a very high-stakes moment, as you point out, Martine. Amber Phillips covers politics for The Post. My name is Lydia Machiveru. I do private home care. Um, 41 years old. I'm originally from Uganda and live in Boston. It's like we have to continue doing our work as domestic workers. And my clients always need me. So with this crisis, I have to go and take care of him. Lydia Nakiberu, every morning she commutes more than two hours from her house over to her client's home, who is 86 years old. Lydia takes two trains and a bus. To me, that's the most caring thing, like contracting the virus, taking it to my clients, and also bringing it to my kids. Like many undocumented immigrants, Lydia is worried about seeking health care if she does fall ill. She doesn't have health insurance. A lot of undocumented immigrants don't trust the Trump administration when they say that they're not going to be enforcing immigration laws near hospitals. We don't have the same legal protection as most workers. My name is Tracy Jan, and I write about race and the economy at The Washington Post. Why did you want to write this story? So this pandemic is hitting you know, everyone across the country in various ways. One group of people that I haven't heard much about were undocumented workers. And we know that they cook our food, you know, they clean our homes and offices, and they are our caretakers. So they're disproportionately actually represented in those industries. And it turns out that there are actually two fronts on which they're hit. They're both more likely to be working in the industries that have already laid off a ton of people. So in our restaurants, our hotels, other hospitality and service jobs. And they're also more likely to be working in what we now call high-risk jobs that are deemed essential. So people who are out in the fields are farm workers, picking our tomatoes, planting our garlic, And also they're in a lot of our caretaking roles, home health aides, they work in nursing homes. And again, the statistics show that they're disproportionately represented in those fields as well. And so theoretically, they're both at a higher chance of getting exposed to the virus and potentially getting sick, but also at a higher likelihood of being economically hurt by what's going on right now and not necessarily having any safety net to make up for it. That's right. There's no safety net for them. For the most part, undocumented immigrants are not eligible for any of our safety net food stamps, Medicaid. You know, their children, if they're born in the U.S., technically are, but a lot of people are afraid to access them now, especially under the Trump administration, which has demonized immigrants from the get-go. So not only are they not eligible for the safety net traditionally, 
They're also less likely to even have sick pay or access to health insurance. And even under the $2 trillion rescue package that Congress passed last week, they don't get it. They don't they can't get the 12. You have to have a Social Security number to be able to qualify for those checks that they're sending out. Absolutely. So even if you're paying taxes, you are still ineligible for these benefits that go to people with Social Security numbers. So if these are people who are not able to be helped by the federal government right now, is there anyone else or are state governments trying to step in and fill the gap and recognize that many of these people are serving in essential roles and are being put at risk because they're doing work that needs to be done right now, but are not protected by the systems that we have in place? Yeah, so there are actually various members of Congress who have recognized this as a gap and they are pushing legislation, but it's not exactly bipartisan. On the state level, local level, there's a lot of advocacy groups around the country that are for immigrant rights, worker rights, and they're actually pushing their city councils or state legislatures to pass some sort of relief fund that will be accessible to workers regardless of their immigration status. And they themselves are actually trying to um, raise money. And, you know, it's very most they haven't raised a lot of money, but they're trying to do their own crowdfunding and to help people pay rent and put food on the table. What has the administration said or done about undocumented people in this context, in the context of coronavirus? So they have eased restrictions around enforcement. So they've said that they're not going to go after undocumented workers, except for ones who are, they deem criminals. But that's very vague. Advocates say that each field office can kind of interpret that how they wish. And according to the administration, if you cross illegally, you're a criminal. So that's why a lot of people don't believe that they're safe. So the Trump administration has actually also made it a lot more difficult for immigrants, even ones who are legal, quote unquote, legal, to get green cards or permanent residency if they've accessed any sort of public safety net benefit for a long time. Before the coronavirus, immigrants, including ones who are authorized to be here, stopped accessing health care and stopped accessing a lot of the things that their children, who are often U.S. citizens, would need. The Trump administration has said in the context of coronavirus If you're going to seek a test, if you're going to seek treatment because of coronavirus, we're not going to count that against you as a quote unquote public charge when you're applying for your green card. But it sounds like that's a pretty small scale concession to make to undocumented people if they're facing all of these huge and and frankly growing challenges during the course of this pandemic. Absolutely. And actually, it's especially ironic because a lot of these immigrants are working in fields that are deemed essential. So you're both considered essential to keeping our economy and U.S. citizens' health going, you know, if you're a caretaker. But at the same time, you're risking your life to do this job and also risking being deported if you're on your way to your job. Some of the advocates have told me that because so many people are staying at home now, it's more obvious who's on the road, depending on the community that you live in. And so they're is fear among immigrants that they're going to be stopped because they're going to be so obviously not staying at home. <laughs> Some of them have been, you know, issued letters by their employers to say it's it's fine if you go work, you're you're deemed essential, but that doesn't guarantee that they're not going to be deported. 
Tracy Jan writes about race and the economy for The Post. And now, one more thing about the residents of the island of Nantucket and why they want people fleeing cities to stay away. I especially love Nantucket in the wintertime. This is Caroline Kitchener, a staff writer for The Lily. Go out on the beach and walk for miles in your coat and not see anybody. You know, I just love the serenity of it. Yeah. So Carly Stahl moved to Nantucket 11 years ago. Originally, when I first moved here, I remember standing on the beach and thinking like, wow, it started to sink in. I am 30 miles out to sea. What the hell am I doing? There's no 24-hour pharmacy or, (laughs) you know, 24-hour anything. Now I feel like, oh my God, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to ever move off island. Every year, the island goes through the same cycle. In July and August, you have people pouring in from all over the East Coast. And, you know, by mid-August, it reaches a peak of about 50,000 people. By the fall, you know, you're you're back down to the locals. You're back down to about the 17,000 people who live on the island year-round. The community in general is amazing. I mean, everyone truly looks out for one another. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. The Nantucket Cottage Hospital was certainly not built for a pandemic. It was built with the understanding that it's a community hospital. It's a safety net hospital. Mm. That is Gary Shaw. He's the CEO of Nantucket Cottage Hospital. It has the capability to provide an intensive care level of service for very episodic periods of time. They have 14 hospital beds. They have five ventilators, but only three that they could use for something like coronavirus. It will quickly be overrun and not be able to be staffed to do that effectively. And, you know, they're concerned that they won't be able to airlift those patients either because the other hospitals, the places that they would send the people, even if they could get them all on a helicopter, they'll be too full to accept them. That's correct. Gary Shaw is anticipating that they're going to have to make some really difficult decisions. It's a joint discussion with community members, the clergy, Mm. our medical staff, our attorneys, um, so that we are prepared to guide staff in how to navigate that horrible possibility. Mm. Are those conversations already happening or not yet? They are. They are are happening now. We've also gone out to turn on our refrigerated uh, morgue. And we've started counting how many body bags we have to be prepared for the worst-case scenario. God help us if that ever happens. Wow. Carly is pretty much the, you know, textbook case of a person you do not want to get the coronavirus. I'd be screwed. (laughs) A mother of two who calls herself a triple threat. I have stage four lung cancer. She has diabetes. I mean, I'm in chemo. Her third round of chemotherapy. So. She is extremely, extremely vulnerable. You know, she knows she's the kind of person who, if it came down to it, probably wouldn't get one of those ventilators. You know, I go back and forth with that 
thought every day. Yeah. All day. Caroline has a very personal connection to this island. Her dad lives there. You know, for a while, I... I tried to convince my dad to leave. I saw the situation on Nantucket, and I was... I am really scared by it. He's 73 years old. And he thought about it, but he said, you know, Caroline, this is my home. These people... You know that I'm I'm so close to they don't have the opportunity to leave and I couldn't face them if I left because we're in this together and we're here together and his message and the message of you know pretty much everybody that I talk to who lives on that island is please don't come here please let us wait out this thing alone and isolated on our island because maybe we can but if you bring this disease here it gets a lot harder for us that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We've been asking listeners to share what's making them smile lately. And we got a note from a listener named John about what the mayor of Kauai is doing to keep up people's spirits. Hello, Kauai, Nihau, and everybody out there. This is Mayor Kawakami with another Stay Home Kauai where we break the boredom together as a community. Yesterday on Instagram, he posted a video about how to make ice cream. I was frustrated this evening. It felt like, you know, one of those days where nothing can go right. And I just wanted to scream. And it's almost curfew. In fact, it is curfew. So, almost. So it's not like I can go down and get my favorite treat that can make the day better, which is ice cream. And I don't have any ice cream here, so we're going to have to MacGyver this thing. You can find a link to this video with instructions on how to MacGyver ice cream at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.